Lord, teach us this morning by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that I'll be a faithful servant of your word. So that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts may be to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin with a rhetorical question. How would you define providence? Think about it. Shortly after the Reformation, a group of Christians in Northern Europe formulated a wonderful teaching document called the Heidelberg Catechism. And uh, it's done pretty good duty for the last 450 plus years. And one of the questions, question 27, is about providence. It asks, what do you understand about providence? And the answer is this. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds all things as with his hands in heaven and earth and all creatures. And so rules them that rain and drought, plenty and want, food and drink, sickness and health, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Well, it's a pretty good definition. It's uh, a bit abstract, but it's biblical in its content, but it's not at all the way the Bible would approach the word. The Bible's way is to tell a story. And the story I'm thinking about now is the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis. A long story. But it's the Bible's answer to the question, what do you understand about providence? It's about a young man named Joseph who's a dreamer, but who's not always clear on the fact that some dreams are to be kept to yourself. He's revealed in a dream one evening that as he is bundling hay with his brothers, his elder brothers, all ten of them at this point, uh, their bundles bow down to his bundle. And he wakes up excitedly, as only uh, a younger brother might, and goes and tells his brothers, you know what I dreamed last night? We were bundling hay, and all your bundles bowed down to my bundle. Stupid. The Bible tells us he was a tattletale. He often informed on his older brothers when they were doing wrong things. And he was daddy's pet. And they hated him for that dream. But then he had another one. And he woke up the next morning. He was so excited he went to his whole family. And he said, last night I dreamed there was, there was the sun and the moon and 11 stars. And all of them were bowing down to me. It didn't take a Freudian psychologist to figure that one out. Jacob, his wife, and those other brothers. So he's a dreamer, but not a wise one. His dreams are true. They're real. But he isn't yet. So one day we're told that Joseph was sent by his father to go out into the field some distance from where they're tent was and to just check on his brothers, which, of course, he loved to do. 
And in giving him these instructions, Jacob unwittingly did exactly what the brothers would like for him to do. They sent Joseph off to a distant place, uh, undetermined, to find them. And when they see him coming, they say, here's our chance. And they argue at some length about whether to just outright murder him or to put him in a pit where he'll just die and they'll sort of technically not be the ones who killed him. Or maybe, and then they saw their chance, to sell him to some traders on their way down to Egypt and to get some money out of it. So they sell him, they take his clothes, they kill an animal, they rub the clothes with blood, and they take him back to Jacob. He's heartbroken, Joseph is gone, and they're rid of their younger brother. And the next thing we know is that Joseph is working for one of the high officials in Pharaoh's courts. Dream Potiphar with a wife determined he is high. The son and the the Bible coming, they have it says and safe now. And he wakes up with like Joseph off to to go out into their son and to some trade and those other back on a dream one too. Get some money out of it. So and maybe she was used to uh, her special friends being in the position she was. And she wanted Joseph to be a special friend. And Joseph... And you know, it, knowing him up to this point, I, I can't think that... But, but what he said to her when she offers him uh, a, a roll in the hay, when, when, when his response is... His response is... And you know, you can just see this self-righteous, uh, arrogant guy still. He's right. I mean, what he's saying is right. He said... How can I dishonor my boss, your husband, by sleeping with you? Now, even that, you know, it's like Mark Twain said. He's a good man in the worst sense of the word. But she wants him. One day when no one's looking, she uh, comes up behind him and grabs him by the shirt and says, sleep with me. I'm sure that's a transition. Working with me, and he, friends, no arrows. Gone. She's left holding the shirt and some rather incriminating evidence, so she screams and accuses him of rape, and he's thrown into jail. And the Bible says this, go figure, but the Lord was with Joseph there too. Well, really, I didn't know the Lord had been with Joseph when he was down in the pit. I didn't know the Lord had been with Joseph when he was staying in the house of Potiphar. But apparently the Lord had been with Joseph all along, and when he gets in jail... He's with him there, and he's such, again, an exemplary prisoner. He gets, he gets to be a trustee. He gets to sort of run the internal affairs of the jail. And sure enough, in short order, this budding young CEO is running the jail as smoothly as can be. Can be and he's, just, he's, he's admired. He's, he's looked up to. And when two men from Pharaoh's court, a baker and a cupbearer, fall into disfavor, they see immediately someone who can help them. So they get to know him. And they have a dream, Joseph's specialty. The cupbearer's dream is like this. He said, I saw a vine growing, and three branches went out, and clusters of grapes grew on it, and I, I took the clusters of grapes, and I squeezed them into the king's cup, and I offered it to him. What's it mean? Hope it's good. Joseph says it means in three days you're going to be reinstated. Please remember me when you are. Good, good, good. Well, the baker's listening to this. He had a dream, too. He said, you know, I had a dream, too. I had, I had three baskets of pastries, 
and they were stacked on my head, and, uh, and these birds came and ate the Danish. What's that mean? Hope it's good. Joseph said, no one knows dreams but God, but your dream means that in three days you're going to be beheaded, your body impaled on a pole, and the birds are going to eat your flesh. Sorry I asked. <laughs> and it happened. And the cupbearer is reinstated and for two years forgets Joseph. Joseph stays in jail another two years. And then well, Pharaoh has a dream or two. <laughs> Joseph's specialty. And he wants someone to interpret what the dream means. And so the cupbearer says, oh, man, I forgot. Gosh, what been one? I guess two, two, I'm, oh, man, two years ago, I met a guy in jail who was great with dreams. He's a Hebrew, and he seems to always know what they mean. And Pharaoh calls him. Jo- uh, Joseph takes a quick shower. He, uh, the Bible says literally that. He bathes and he shaves, and he goes right into the Pharaoh's court. And the Pharaoh says, I had these dreams. Can you tell me what they mean? And again, and I think by now a little less cocky, he again speaks truth. He says, God only knows what dreams mean. So tell me yours. Pharaoh said, I saw two fat, healthy, excuse me, seven fat, healthy cows coming up out of the Nile. And they begin to graze. And then seven skinny, ugly ones came out of the Nile. And they ate up the good ones. And I woke up and I thought, what's that mean? And I went back to sleep, and then I saw these, these seven healthy heads of grain, and, and they, were, they were beautiful. And then I saw seven ugly, diseased heads of grain come up, and they gobbled up the seven good ones. What's it mean? Joseph said, it means we've got seven good years ahead of us, and we've got seven bad ones. You better start saving and planning for the bad ones. Pharaoh was impressed. He looked at his advisors and he said, you know, this is amazing. That makes all the sense in the world. And and we need somebody who's qualified to administer the program. Joseph stands there and everybody looks at him. Again, this, this guy, I mean, with the exception of the two years in jail, he just, he just gets there. He just sort of lands on his feet. And the next thing we know, he is on, came out. Fat sour. And as the, as the drought begins to deepen and the famine gets worse and worse, guess where it's touching? It's touching home. And one day, 11, excuse me, 10 at this point, 10 men come from Canaan to Egypt to get food, and guess who they are? The older brothers of Joseph. And they need food. And I guess he's put on some weight, he's better dressed, his hairstyle's differently, whatever it is, they don't recognize him. And guess what they do? They bow low before Joseph. And he's astonished just like the dream. 
and he's, he's so full of emotion. He, he doesn't know what to do with himself, and he, he says, now, what are you here for? <clears throat> oh, we're starving. No, you're not here. <clears throat> he's, he's fighting back the tears. Later on, we're told that Joseph cries so loud that the whole palace can hear his cries. Here they are. Can you imagine? Your brothers, and they tried to kill you. And now they're bowing down, asking for a favor. You're here to spy. You want to find out what our weaknesses are. That's what you're here for. Oh, no, 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 no. We're, we're not spies. We're, we're a family. They're, they're, they're 12 brothers. Well, actually, one's gone now. And the other is the youngest, and he's our father's favorite. And so the, the, the ten of us were sent off to, to ask for food. And Joseph said, I don't believe a word of that. You, you go get that younger brother. Bring him here and prove that you're who you say you are. We can't do that. His name, well, you know, my, our mother died when he was born, and she was going to name him Ben-Omi, son of my sorrow. And, but my father changed his name to Benjamin, son of the right hand, my favorite. You can call me Benjamin if you want. And my father's, he, his heart would be broken if, you, if, if, he ever had, if he ever lost him. We, we can't get him. He said, well, you will get no food until you bring him back to see me. And I'm going to demand that one of you stay here until you do. Well, Simeon gets the duty. The brothers go back and tell Jacob, who won't hear of it. And they live on the food they have until they run out. And this father sends them back, and they say, we can't go back unless we bring Benjamin. They do. And when Benjamin comes back, Joseph says, you bring your father back too. This is a long trip. And finally, Judah stands up. Can you imagine what this would feel like to Joseph? He says, look, if we leave Benjamin here, our father, he won't survive this. You see, he lost, he lost one of our brothers. And if he lost Benjamin, it would be too much for his old heart. Whereupon Joseph rushes out of the room. And he cries so loud that the whole palace hears it. And he gets his composure. He comes back and he says this to his brothers. I'm Joseph. <coughs> Don't be angry with yourselves because you did this to me. For God did it. He sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. God has sent me here to keep you and your families alive so that you will become a great nation. Yes, it was God who sent me here, not you. Well, the story is a lot richer and more detailed than I've told it this morning. But that's one way the Bible defines providence. What it's saying here is you can find God's providence even in a dysfunctional family. It tells the story where 14 chapters of how a really screwed up family with a father who was not a good father, with brothers who hated each other and were jealous of each other, who attempted to murder one of their own, it says through all that and in all that, God was doing something to save many for God, For God did it. And it takes on even greater significance if you consider the place of the story in the book of Genesis. 
You know how Genesis starts? God creates things. He makes them good. We mess them up. God calls out a man and his family and says, you, you be my, my stewards, my agents in this world. You, you bring my salvation. You show people what I'm like. They screw it up. And it happens again and again and again for all 50 chapters of the first book in the Bible. And the implicit question through all these stories is, can we screw things up so badly that God can't fix it? Can we go so against God's holiness that His promises are finally negated? And the answer is no. No, no. He will will work through even the worst to bring the best. Now, the Bible has other definitions of providence. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes for them. It has longer definitions, like the 400 years of silence between Malachi and John the Baptist, from the words of the last Old Testament prophet to the forerunner of Christ. Then, too, while God was silent for four centuries, He was still in the silence causing everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. Indeed, providence is God's almighty and ever-present power by which He upholds as with His hands heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that all things, in fact, all things come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Well, if that's true, How should we live? There's a follow-up question in the Heidelberg Catechism to the question about providence. The question is, how does knowing God's providence help us? The answer is great. We can be patient when things go against us. We can be thankful when things go well. And we can be confident in the future because our almighty God and Father has determined that nothing will ever separate us from His love. Let's look at each one. Patient when things go against us. Patience, that's what it means. Oh, patience is what you get when you get yourself out of the center and get God back in the center of the universe. Now, let's start small on this. What are the things that make you impatient? Well, I'll tell you what really makes me impatient. This is, the, this is my current big one. Uh, it's people driving in the fast lane. Slow. Okay, okay, now we're all, you know, we have righteous indignation against these people, right? And, and, and invariably, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get somewhere, I'm in the fast lane, and there's this car going about 20 miles below the speed limit, and, and when I go around them finally, here's what they look like. I mean, that just really makes me mad. 
Now, now, why should it make me so mad? Why should I get so angry because they're going slow in the fast lane and slowing me down? Why should I get so mad about it? Because someone so important is being frustrated. Me. For heaven's sake. Now, where did I get that idea about myself? For what possible reason could I be so indignant if somebody here drives slower than I want them to in front of me? Why should I get so angry if it's not because I somehow have decided that I'm at the center of things and my rights, my needs, my desires are somehow more important than theirs? Well, patience is what you get when you realize finally that it's not about you. It's about God. Okay, let's start where it's easy. The universe is not about you. The Bible says, for from him and through him and to him and for him all things were created. Okay, that's easy. That's big. History, it's not about us. It's about him. Again, all human events will one day be consummated in Christ. We can, we can get our minds around that one. But how about this one? You are not about you. Oh, really? Well, let's just think about it for a moment. Everything you are and everything you have, I mean everything, you've borrowed. Your existence, your gifts, your intelligence, your possessions, these are all on loan from you. And one day you'll have to give them back by the way, I've spent a lot of time this last month in skilled nursing facilities as I watched my parents' life uh, just sort of drain away from them. And if ever I had any illusions about ev everything, I mean everything, not just what you have, but who you are, being on loan and, and loaned to you by God, and you have to, you have to give it back. Well, when that settles in on us, we realize the universe is not about me. History is not about me. I'm not about me. I'm about God. I came from God. I came through God. I go to God, and I will give an account for what I did with what God gave me while I lived. Now, if I get dethroned from my place of highest honor, it sets me free really good, by the way. It sets me free to be patient when things are going against me. In fact, I think it's a kind of secret of happiness. The sinner has become like a child. That's from Psalm 131. Let me read it to you. It's a short one. Lord, my God, that I'm proud of that one. I don't concern myself with matters too great or awesome for me. Big. You've borrowed. You can loan to you by God just as a small child. It's not about you. Soul with my parents. Hebrew possessions. Child grown to a place of time of being weaned. In that culture, it meant five, six, seven years old. Kind of shocking when you go to places in the world where 
five-year-olds are lifting up their mommy's blouses for lunch, but that's the way it is in much of the world. And you know how babies are when it comes to food? Watch them. This is a baby, hungry. I mean, they cry, they, they kick, they twist, they, they just start going after things, like, you know, like aliens, you know, little, just little jaws just going after the food, you know. I mean, babies are incredibly selfish. Now, the Bible says when you, when you come to a place of trust, when you get off the throne, you become like a weaned child. What's a weaned child like? It's one who trusts her mother and knows that mommy will give what is needed and can therefore stand by mommy's side and play and be relaxed like that peace and not demand. When Jesus said become like children, he didn't mean become like infants. Let God be God. It'll make you patient when things go against you. And when you're patient, you can be free from the tyranny of how other people treat you. This bit of wisdom I'm going to read you came from Mother Teresa, and it came to me in a Christmas letter from a friend. This is great. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people will often accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind to be patient successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone may destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people may often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world your best, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you have anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it's between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. That's what a high and exalted view of God's sovereign providence does for us. It sets us free from the tyranny of how people treat us. I don't know how long did it take Joseph to figure out that this whole thing wasn't about him and his brothers. When did it, when did it dawn on him? I don't know. But when he grew up, he knew it. It was never between him and those brothers it was always between him and the God who gave him the brothers. That's huge. Secondly, we can be thankful when things go our way. You know, doesn't it feel good? I mean, doesn't it feel good to be able to say thank you? I mean, think about it. When you've, when you've noticed, you've, you've actually as I do, just once in a while notice that I'm being given something. Isn't it great to be able to say thank you and to know who you're saying thank you to? 
We spent a marvelous week in Seattle some years ago with a family didn't believe in God, and they, they treated us so well. They fed us well. They took us places, and, and we were grateful to them, but it was so... It was so incomplete because we just couldn't ever, in their presence anyway, without offending them, say thank you to God. Now, we have a friend in Texas. Whenever we're with her, she, she's so aware of God, and she'll say things like when we're having a good meal or we're listening to some good music, we're having a great conversation. She'll lean back, and in her southern drawl will say, now look at the Lord, he's just showing off again. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a loose but accurate way of talking about what the Bible means, about glorifying God. God likes to be glorified. He likes to be shown. He likes to show His glory. He likes for us to notice His glory because it makes us happy. We are at our best when that happens. And knowing that God is the sovereign ruler, we are not ourselves the one who have acquired what we have. God's given it all. It is such a joy to say thank you, thank you, thank you. To fall out of an airplane... And all the way down to the ground, before you hit it, just say, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. You gave me everything I have and am. Oh, you are so good. And thirdly and finally, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from His love. You know, I read a lot of books on God's sovereignty and by philosophers and theologians, and they're always really hard for me to understand. And invariably, some of you students will ask me this year, you'll come into my office and you'll say, now, now explain predestination to me. And I'll get done talking to you, and you won't understand it any better than I do. So I have to go to poets for my understanding. And the poet I'm thinking of here is George Herbert. He said, God's sovereign providence is like that of a musician. He's, and Herbert himself played a stringed instrument, a lute. He said, he puts his fingers at the top and his right hand at the body and he strums it and he tunes it. And if we could just hear the music he's making, we'd be overwhelmed. But the problem is, for us, we're so small, and we're so embedded in the score that all we ever hear in our lifetimes is maybe one or two strums. And depending on where you live and who you know, I mean, you might hear something awful. You might hear something beautiful. It, but that's not the point. The point is God, who sees all things, who holds all things, as with his hand, is making beautiful music. And therefore, we can be confident about the future. As one Latin American theologian put it, Ruben Alves, he said, hope is hearing the music of the future. Faith is to dance to it. Confidence in the future. Well, I'm going to close with a short story and then some scripture. Uh, Juan Carlos Ortiz, uh, a Latin American evangelist, is here in the United States the last several years. He was arrested in Argentina, his native country, for preaching the gospel. And he'd been arrested repeatedly. And on about the fifth or sixth arrest, he was told that if he gospel, it is him. Ask me this. Yes. By philosophy. Just here. 
And you've got to hear Ortiz say this. He says it so well. But he said, no problem. When I'm in jail, I'll just tell all the jailers about Jesus. Well, the magistrate got a little angry. And he said, well, okay. He said, God, that's the way you want it. We'll put you in solitary confinement if you keep preaching. No problem. So students will ask me. Well, the jailer really got angry. He said, all right. If that's the way you want it, we'll shoot you. And Ortiz said, no problem. You kill me, and I'll be with my Lord forever. The jailer slammed his fist down on the desk, and he said, what are we going to do with you? And Ortiz said, you've got a problem. <laughs> that's what the knowledge of God's providence does about the future. Well, the scripture. And when I'm done with this scripture, you'll be dismissed. It's one of the best, maybe the best definition of providence in all the Bible. It holds all things. Verses 18 to 39. Confident. Have the Holy Spirit. Yet, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he'll give us later. All creation is waiting for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, everything on earth was subjected to God's curse. All creation anticipates the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Even we Christians who have the Holy Spirit within us a foretaste. Some of you students will groan to be released from pain and suffering. We too wait anxiously for that day when God will give us our full rights as his children including the new bodies he's promised us. The pains of childhood, you can eagerly look forward to that freedom. Shoot, said, okay, already gospel one. Those old hearts, and we eagerly look forward to something we don't have yet. We must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our distress. For we don't even know what to pray for or how we should pray. But the Holy Spirit pleads for us in groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And God, who knows all hearts, understands what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's will. And we know that God works in everything for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for our full for all people before creation he chose them to become like his son though his son might become the firstborn in a family of many brothers and sisters and having chosen them he called them to come to him and he gave them right standing with himself and he promised them his glory what can we say 
about such wonderful things as these. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't God, who gave us Christ, also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us? Whom God has chosen for his own. Will God? No. For he is the one who has given us right standing with himself. Who will then condemn us? Will Christ? No. Christ died for us. Christ was raised to life for us. Christ sits at the place of highest honor next to God, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or cold or in danger or threatened with death? I mean, even the scriptures say, for your sake, we're killed every day. We're slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all these things, Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't, and life can't. The angels can't, and the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, and even all the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we're high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation can ever separate us from the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is the Word of God. You're dismissed. <laughs>